Hello and welcome to another episode of the NBCSports.com College Basketball Talk Podcast. This is going to be the first podcast for the uh, 2016 year. Um, I'd like to welcome my uh, my buddy and my colleague, Raphael Johnson, onto the podcast with me today. Raph, what's going on, bro? Not much. Uh, happy New Year to you and, and all the listeners out there. Um, hope everyone had a good time and were safe and responsible while doing so, but yeah, you know, conference play is here in full swing, so this is usually the party time of year where things really pick up in college basketball, which is good. Yeah, did you have a good New Year's? Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I really enjoyed it myself. Yeah. Did, you, did you have a good New Year's Day? You know, it was kind of a mixed bag. I, I went to the gym, but then I kind of shot that down by eating some unhealthy food, but it was one of those days where you just kind of do all the rules out. So I'm just going to do whatever I can to kind of rejuvenate myself, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. How was the gym on New Year's Day? You know, the- there weren't too many people there. I always like being in kind of a, a sparsely populated gym just so you can get more done. Um, I'm sure today you're going to have a bunch of those New Year's resolution type people in there. So get a couple days in there without too much human interaction. That, that's really good, I think. Yeah, I went on, not on New Year's Day, the day after New Year's Day, which would uh-huh. have been that Saturday, Yeah, and it was packed, dude. <laughs> it was, it was, you know, I, I don't, I don't need necessarily like too much space because there's, I don't, like I don't need like a pull-up bar, a place to do push-ups, like, um, you know, a place to kind of run on a treadmill or whatever. Like mm-hmm. I don't really do too much at the gym these days. Like I'm not out there like trying to squat 415 anymore or whatever. Yeah. But even that was just kind of like so ridiculous. I had to wait like twenty minutes just to get on a treadmill. Oh, like, man. like what? Do you, like, come on! Like, I know you guys. I've been going to this gym for like six months now. Like, I know that there's not this many people here, and I know you guys are going to be gone within like the next week and a half. So that's the thing that's so upsetting about it. It's like, it, it's usually people who aren't going to be there in February who are just kind of taking up the most space. Like, dude, just just sit down, man. Please. <laughs> yeah, stop trying to better yourself. Stop trying to get into <laughs> shape. Just give it up. Your life's over. <laughs> yeah, it's never going up. All right, well, the big thing that happened on New Year's Eve was that we had a couple of uh, primetime showdowns in the Big East, but they both kind of ended up being busts a little bit. Uh, let's talk first about um, Villanova and Xavier. And I guess Xavier is the more interesting topic of conversation here. Uh, they ended up losing by 31 points at Villanova in a game where Edmund Sumner, who is arguably their most talented player, I think is fair to say, uh, was stretchered off three minutes into the game when a six foot seven, 240 pound Chris Jenkins kind of landed on his head on an awkward collision. Uh, on a fast break layup, and they just—it uh, looked like Xavier never really recovered from that. But two days later, they hosted Butler and basically ran Butler out of the gym. I think they ended up winning by 20 points in that game. So I guess my question to you is, which one of those teams is the real Xavier? I would lean closer to the one we saw against Butler. Yeah, you know, it, it's one thing if you know that you're going to be without. The guy in Sumner, who's their most important player, I think, just because of how dynamic he is with the ball in his hands. It's one thing to know when you're not have that guy, and it's another to experience the shock of seeing that guy laid out on the floor and have to be stretched off the court as he did at Villanova. 
Um, take nothing away from Villanova. I thought they were outstanding in that game. But there is a clear difference in Xavier you know, against Villanova without Sumner. Larry Jr. struggled with turnovers again. And Miles Davis, while he's kind of, he can be a caretaker for them on the ball, he's much better served to be off the ball when you have Sumner on the court. So not having that guy was a huge difference for them. I, I think Xavier coming out, clamping down defensively, being much more efficient offensively against Butler. That, those are good signs for them. They're going to be okay. It's just a matter of getting Sumner back you know, to full strength. They're going to be perfectly fine, I think. Yeah, I was talking to one of the Xavier assistants after that game, and what he was basically saying is that like their team is super close. Yeah. You know, they like they they have a lot of guys on the team that are very very good friends, and when you see a very good friend of yours get stretchered off the court, where um, apparently like he said to Chris Mack, like he had trouble moving his arms and stuff like mm-hmm. that after uh, the initial injury, and. Um, it was just kind of one of those things where, like, they didn't know what was wrong with him. And it was the mm-hmm. uncertainty that kind of messed them up. Like, if you saw one of your best friends get stretched off like that, I don't think you'd be, uh, you know, functioning normally um, until you found out that he was okay. And eventually they found out he was okay. Like, some, I don't yeah. even think he was diagnosed with a concussion. He uh, made, yeah, he even made the trip back with him. Yeah, he so. got on the plane. He flew back. Like, he didn't have to stay in Philly at all. So he ended up being fine. But I, I think that that performance, like, I'm, I'm not saying that Villanova wouldn't have won because the way that they were playing and the way that they shot the ball, like, I don't know if Xavier could have won that game. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that Villanova, regardless of how well they shoot, when Xavier is right, I don't think that Villanova is 31 points better than Xavier. Right? Agreed. Is, is, I guess my point, you know, Villanova is the two-time champ. They've lost four games in the last two regular seasons in the Big East. Like, they're... You know, until somebody knocks them off, until somebody went, takes that title from them, they are the biggest champions. So you got to be able to say, like, look, you know what? They beat us. They probably would have beat us there anyways. But I, I don't, I don't think that the it's the margin of victory and like how bad Xavier looked in that loss. I think it's just it's not an accurate representation of them. And I think you're exactly right. When they went and they played Butler at home, I think we got a much better feel of what Xavier actually is as a team. Uh, so I guess my question to you then is like, what do we make of Butler at this point? You know, they're Owen two. they lost to Providence at home on that new year's Eve in the other marquee game. And then they went and they got smoked. They got, they get, I mean, they got beaten pretty handily by a Xavier team who didn't have their best player in Sumner, who just so happens to be like the one guy that you would say, okay, that's where Xavier can take advantage of that matchup with Butler. Well, you know, I think the concerns with Butler defensively are still there. Um, granted, few teams, if any, are going to be able to shut down Chris Dunn. That, that's understandable. He's going to go off. But if you look at what Rodney Bullock did in that game for Providence, I think that was that was kind of a concerning thing because when we talk about Butler's defense, the question marks are on the perimeter. You know, you look at Tyler Lewis and Kellen Dunn, neither one are going to be your prototypical defensive stoppers by any stretch, but for Bullock to do what he did against that front court, which is defensively, I think that would be a concern. They just really didn't have an answer at all for Xavier on Saturday. Um, Kellen Dunham, he came a little bit out of his slump, I guess you'd say, against Xavier, moving to the bench, maybe kind of. Yeah, before, like one quick thing. You want to know, know how bad of a slump Kellen Dunham is in? 
He's like two for thirty-two in the five games. Well, prior, yeah, he so. was two. He was two for thirty-two from three in the previous yeah. five games. He'd missed twenty-three straight threes, and he'd been shooting sixteen percent from the floor in the in that five-game stretch. But to get the real idea of how bad of a slump he was in, he shot mm-hmm. four for twelve against Xavier, and everyone was like, "Oh, good, Kellen Dun- Dunham yeah. snapped out that <laughs> slump. Four for twelve. Like he didn't really mm-hmm. play all that well. He had a yeah. couple of threes early, and everyone was like, "Oh, finally, we got Kellen Dunham back. He's not terrible anymore. He's not shooting like he's Raphael Johnson." Oh great! Excellent. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go. No, you hit the nail on the head. You know, I think the fact that four for twelve represented a step forward for him—that's kind of alarming at this point in the season. I'm not ready to to give up on that team thus far, but they really need to figure some things out defensively because it's not going to get easier. You know, Seton Hall, well, Georgetown has has rebounded from its non-conference play. Uh, to get to 2-0 and in the Big East. So if Butler is to contend in the Big East, they're going to need to get going pretty soon because with the teams at the top, you don't want to get too far behind. Yeah, it's it's. I don't know if they're going to be able to contend for the league title yeah. at this point. Like when they're, I don't know if they can suffer two more losses and be able to win the league title. I think that's how good the teams at the top are. I think the winner of this league is probably going to end up having like three losses, maybe two losses this season. So... Yeah, it's going to be tough for them. Um, I still think that they are a team that can reach the Sweet 16 and maybe get a little bit farther, just because they're so potent offensively. But I don't. I, I think they have to find. I think they kind of have to settle on a rotation. And and you're right. Like their defensive issues are a problem. I wonder if that is why they ended up changing their starting lineup against Xavier. Like they they. I think they. What was it? Four starters. Three starters were changed. Yeah. They dropped uh, Shrabaz. Um, Andrew Shrabaz, Tyler Lewis, and Kellen Dunham out of the starting lineup against Xavier and started Austin Etherington, Keelan Martin, and Tyler Weidman. Or, I'm sorry, and, uh, and, and Jordan Gathers, yeah. who normally don't start. So, you know, it, I, I, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the team. I still think their best lineup is when they have Roosevelt Jones, uh, Keelan Martin, and Kellen Dunham on the floor at the same time. I think what you have to do if your butler is just kind of say, look, we're going to do everything we can defensively, but we're going to make sure that we can outscore you because I just, I don't know if they're ever going to be a good defensive team. So I think this, I think they could end up being a team that matches up better outside of the big East than inside of it. You know, to your point about them possibly making a sweet 16 run. Yeah. You know, cause the one thing with them, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. Like the issue with them is being able to guard guys that can penetrate from the perimeter. Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't think that even, I think you can even throw Roosevelt Jones in the same conversation. Like, I don't think he's a guy, like, I think he's a good defender, but I don't, if you got a guy like a, a Chris Dunn or, you know, Edmund Sumner, some of these guys that are like kind of as big as an, and athletic as he is, I don't yeah. know if he's like the greatest side to side mobile guy. Like I, I just, I, I don't think that he's going to be able to stay in front of some of these super athletic little quick point guards. It's just, I, I just, I don't know if that's naturally who he is. Like what the one thing they do really well and what they did really well against Purdue is um, they move well. They like their defensive rotations are really solid and they did a very good job of making sure that AJ Hammonds and Isaac Haas didn't really beat them. So I think they can handle size. Like they're, they're kind of undersized on their front line, but I think they handle size better than they mm-hmm. do quickness and athleticism in the backcourt. And the problem is, in the Big East, I feel like every team, every good team in the Big East has good guard play. You know, yeah. Look at what Seton Hall has. You mentioned Georgetown. 
Um, Villanova obviously has two point guards in Ryan Archie Diakno and uh, and Jalen Brunson. Obviously, Chris Dunn is freaking awesome. Let's talk about Chris Dunn here. I, I, I think for my money, the last two games that he played, the second half at Butler and the performance he had against St. John's were the two best games that he's played at Providence, more or less because of the moment, especially the second half at Butler. Like, they were down 13 late in the first half, and he had, I, th- I believe it was, 15 points and seven assists in the second half. Like, he was just completely unguardable in mm-hmm. the second half against Butler and led them back, and, and you know, they ended up getting a win at Hinkle Fieldhouse, which really isn't all that easy to do. So what are your what are your thoughts on Providence, and, you know, I, I, at what point can we kind of say, like, they really are legitimate – Final Four, national title, Big East title contender? Like, where do you kind of see them at this point? I think they're definitely a Big East title contender. Um, you look at Dun- having a guy like Dunn is obviously a huge key. You have a, a player who can impact the game in so many ways offensively. Um, you still want to see that turnover count come down a little bit. He had five against St. John's, uh, which isn't great considering who St. John's has been to this point in the year. But his ability to break teams down off the dribble, set guys up, it's just so important for that Providence team. And he's shooting the ball pretty well from three. Uh, the last three games, he's eight for 12 from three. You know, So for him, I think that represents a step forward for him, obviously. Um, but the, the other pieces they have, Ben Bentil has been an all-Big East caliber player to this point in the season. Rodney Book stepped forward. Drew Edwards has given him good minutes. Junior Lamamba as well. I really think they're a Big East contender. Um, given how strong the Big East has been, I guess I'll make them a contender to go deep into the tournament, too. Um, I don't know if I'd say Final Four right now, but I can definitely see them being a second weekend team, at least. I think that they are absolutely, at this point, a team that you can say is a Final Four contender. And if you're a Final yeah. Four contender, then I think that you can absolutely say that they are a national title contender for a couple of reasons. The biggest one is the, the the first point you made is that they have a guy on their team named Chris Dunn. And Chris Dunn, mm-hmm. for my money, is the best player in college basketball, not named Ben Simmons. Like I don't I, at this point, like I don't think we can really argue who the best player in college basketball yeah. is. Like it's Ben Simmons. Mm-hmm. And when when I had Borzello on the podcast, like he made a point that that uh that I kind of couldn't argue with. He basically just said, like, do you really realize how good Ben Simmons is? And it kind of made me step back and think, like, yeah, you know, LSU might not be that great this year, but Ben Simmons is, like, really, really freaking good. Mm. So I think Chris Dunn, for my money, is probably the best player in college basketball not named Ben Simmons. He does it on both ends of the floor. I think what he showed us against Butler is that he can take over games in the second half. He makes big plays down the stretch. And he's not afraid to get his teammates involved, which I think is key, too, because, uh, you know, defense are going to start keying on him. Yeah. And when he has guys like Drew Edwards and Rodney Bullock and Ben Bentle making the plays that they made, you know, I, why, why can't – in a year where we keep saying that there is no elite team in college basketball, why can't a team with a bunch of really good role players and the best point guard in the country – and the second best player in the country, like why can't they make a run to a national title? Like we saw UConn do it mm-hmm. two different times. So yeah. I, I just I think that you absolutely have to put Providence. In, would I call them a favorite? No. Would I wager my money uh, on them you know, doing it at this point? 
the season? Probably not. But like, I, I, I think they absolutely are capable of doing it. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Uh, as far as um, as far as the Big East is concerned, you know, I, I think I don't really know, man. Like, I last week I kind of said that I don't think that Villanova is the favorite anymore. But after seeing what they did to Xavier at home, and you know, the idea that they can probably regress to the mean so to speak when it comes to their three-point shooting i think that they at this point you kind of have to say that like they're the favorite until they they don't win it anymore yeah but i think it's really just going to come down to it's one of these situations where like you know when those when those teams play each other you know who wins game on somebody's home court you know does providence go into villanova and beat villanova at villanova can villanova win at xavier like that kind of thing whoever gets that win on somebody else's home court is going to be the team that kind of I don't know takes a step forward in my mind I guess but I'll tell you what man it's going to be a lot of fun watching those yeah. top 4 teams kind of square off against each other look at that listen to this stretch that uh that that Providence has later this month on January 19th they get Butler at home on the 23rd they play at Villanova and on the 26th they get Xavier at home then they play at Georgetown at DePaul, and then they get Villanova at home again. So that is a pretty brutal three-game and, and six-game stretch that they're going to yeah. have to uh, go through later in the season. I think that when we come out of it by the end of January, we're really going to know whether or not Providence is a true Big East contender. Real quickly, let me just ask you about Georgetown, Marquette, and I guess Seton Hall. We have to throw into that conversation as well do you think any of those teams are capable of cracking the top four and or making the ncaa tournament um i think cno and both capable of making the ncaa tournament cno has that win at against wichita state at home it really helps their resume i think georgetown you know maybe we were a little quick to shovel dirt on that team but given how they played, you know, during stretch of the non-conference play, I don't really see how that that can be held against anyone for doing so. They didn't look all that good. Of those three teams, I would probably say that Georgetown would be the one you'd expect to to maybe make a run at contending just because of their experience. Um, Seton Hall definitely has a talent. Desi Rodriguez ended up getting benched for some things he said uh, and during the first half of Saturday's game, but I think he'll be okay. He's been one of the most improved players in the Big East. Isaiah Whitehead starting to take to this point guard thing. But I think Georgetown would probably be the one I, I'd put my hat on of the three. If we're going to look at any of them to make a run at contending. Marquette, I'm really concerned about that team. I, they're not defending all that well. I don't think um, they've given up 80-plus in their last two games, in Seton Hall and Georgetown, beaten convincingly in both. I don't know if they can re- re- rebound and be an NCAA tournament team. And their overall resume isn't all that great. They beat LSU and Arizona State. Those, Arizona State's probably a bubble team at best at this point. LSU may be on the right side of the bubble after that win at Vanderbilt. But, um, yeah, Marquette doesn't have a whole lot on their resume, so to speak. And, and I don't know, with Providence coming up tomorrow, I don't really know if this team's going to be able to rebound. Because after that Providence game, St. John's, who they should beat, then at Villanova, Xavier at home. That's really tough three and four game stretch right there. So I don't think Marquette's going to be a team that rebounds as a tournament team. They're really young too. Yeah, and, and let's talk about that. Like at Providence, at Villanova, Xavier at home. If they don't win 
any of those three games are going to start the Big East off one and five. And that is a really, really difficult hole to yeah. dig yourself out of. You know, I think their issue is that I just I don't I was high on their guards coming into the season. And I think their guards are probably a year away from being as good as I mm-hmm. thought they were going to be. The, I, I, part of his decision making, part of it is turnovers. Part of it is that they're just not they don't really have any great three point shooters out there. Um, you know, it's it's kind of a shame too because they do have two NBA players on their front line, Luke yeah. Fisher and Henry Ellison. Like Henry Ellison is really really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned this the other day. I think that he, I might take him as the number two pick. You know, behind Ben Simmons if the NBA draft was today. You know, I don't know if I would, in terms of like what the NBA is is moving towards and what his his age and what his skill set is I don't I, I don't know if I would take anybody other than Ben Simmons over him all right let's shift gears uh, let's talk a little bit about the pac 12 out in your uh, West Coast stomping grounds a little bit can you all right Cal went 2 and0 this weekend right mm-hmm. Utah went 0 and two Washington went 2 and0 this weekend UCLA went 0 and two Oregon lost at Oregon State and did I miss any other weird results? Um, well, no, I don't think so. Yeah. So, so make sense of this conference to me, because for my money, it seems like the only team that makes sense at this point is Arizona. Yes. And that's why Arizona is the best team in the conference. I think, um, Washington, incredible rally against USC yesterday. That game changed when Julian Jacobs got hurt, you know, so without him, USC just lost any semblance of control. I kind of liken Washington to a lesser experience Hawaii in, in terms of the way they have to play to be successful. They need some form of chaos going on. They've got some talent. Marquise Chris is a very good player. Uh, Matisse Thibault is a good player, good freshman as well. Um, that team, I think, is going to take a really big leap forward when they get um, Markel Fultz next year. But they're young. I don't see them being a contender in the Pac-12 this year. I think California's turnaround. Um the way they defended in those two losses in Las Vegas, it was nowhere near the standard that Juanzo Martin has for that team. That's been the biggest difference for them. They really buckled down deep. They won eight of nine, that one loss being a one-point loss at Virginia. No shame in that. The way in which they've defended it has been really key because they don't play very fast. You know, They have those athletes and whatnot. But this is really a half-court team. So the better they defend in a half-court, I think they're the best in the country defending two-point shots. You know, so the way they defend, they're just solid. They don't force turnovers. As long as they keep you in front of them, they can challenge a lot of shots with their athleticism. That's been the biggest key for Cal of late. Yeah, you mentioned defending the two-point shots. Did you see what they did to Josh Scott and uh, and Jakob Pertle this weekend, who are probably, I think it's fair to say, the two best big men in the Pac-12? Is that wrong? No, you're right. They they shut both. They really limited both of those guys. No I think they were a combined. 19, yeah, they were a combined ten for thirty from the floor in those yeah. two wins. Um, and that's not even factoring in what they did to Davidson, which was an absolute evisceration. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I think this team's finally starting to come around. Like you're you were exactly right the other day when you were talking about Ivan Rab and the impact that he's having. It looks like they're trying to get him a little bit more involved offensively, but he's mm-hmm. he he kind of strikes me as one of these guys that like he doesn't have to have touches to be able to have an impact on a game. Exactly. You know, he'll go and get some offensive rebounds. He'll set some screens. Uh, like he'll move without the ball. He'll uh, he'll he'll play defense. He'll take charges. He'll, he'll block 
a shot or two here or there. So I think that he's a guy that, you know, when they have him playing well, I think that it kind of changes things for them. You think that's fair? I do. And I think with the bigs, you also we know that Cameron Rooks and uh, Kingsley Okoro both contributed well this week. And I know Okoro didn't score yesterday, but five rebounds and three blocks. Rooks gave them some points, which are bonus points, basically. You know, he played well against Colorado. So if those two can come along and be good supplements for Rab, I think that makes Rab even more effective because I don't know if you want him being that five-man all the time, which is why they moved Rooks back into the starting lineup and Jabari Bird to the bench earlier this season. So the, the more those two develop, the better this Cal team can be. Yeah, they really need those two big guys to just kind of like – be able to be really big. Yeah. You know, just get out there, be like they're both like seven foot plus, 250 pounds plus. Like just go out there, take up space, use up your five fouls. Don't worry mm-hmm. about, you know, having to foul out or anything. Get some rebounds, block some shots, and just like get in there and be really big. Exactly. So I, I think that that's making a difference for them. At this point, would you call them the second best team in the conference? Hmm. I think given the way that they're playing right now, I, I'd probably say that they are. Um, but as we've we've seen with the results this weekend, that could change on a weekly basis depending on, you know, how teams play on the road. So, yep. you know, that UCLA, we saw a prime example of that. They've now lost their last three games in Pullman, which is kind of weird given how bad Washington State has been in recent years. But, boy, I, I don't know. Tony Parker really struggled this weekend. They need to get him. Bryce Offord, I know he scored 30 against Washington. He didn't shoot well. It wasn't a good games. 30. Yeah, exactly. He, he, how many shots did he need? Like 21? Yeah, I think he was 5 points? for 21 from the floor with seven turnovers and one assist. Yeah. Like he it, hit big shots know, down the stretch that are going to make people forget the fact that he was absolutely awful for the first 36 <laughs> minutes of that game. Exactly. You know, I think right now it's, seen, it's almost as if while they have Isaac Hamilton going, Offord's kind of tailed off a bit. They, they need to find a way to get – all those guys going at the same time. I think most importantly is going to be Tony Parker moving forward. He can't play as he did this weekend and still expect UCLA to He has to be better than what he's been. I'm not too worried about Utah, uh, but they've got a tough game at Colorado on Friday. So I think they really need to start turning things around quickly, but I'm not as worried about Utah as I am UCLA, even with Utah's shaky backcourt play. The one thing that is important to note here is that Utah lost at Stanford and Colorado, and UCLA lost at Washington and Washington State. The other game was Cal, not Colorado. Cal, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, But Cal won two games at home and now has five of their next seven on the road. They have to play at Oregon, at Oregon State, at Stanford, at Utah, and at Colorado uh, all before January is over. And that doesn't even factor in that they're – also going to have Arizona at home during that stretch. So we're we're going to find out if Cal's for real within the next uh, within the next month. And I think they are. You know, I'd lean towards them. Kind of. I, I don't. I don't think they're going to be undefeated at the end of January by any chance. But I think that they can pick off the teams that they're supposed to beat on the road. I think they can defend their home court, and I think they're going to end up being the second best team in that league. Let's talk about Arizona for one quick second. And uh, yeah, I, I, this team reminds me a little bit. We'll, we'll get into Kansas in a second, but Kansas kind of reminds me of that 2014 Florida team, the one that didn't really have any NBA players. 
mm-hmm. but ended up being by the end of the year the consensus best team in the country because they had really good veterans that understood their role. They had really good guard play. They were really well coached. They defended and they made big shots. And that's what I kind of see Kansas being. And I don't think that this Arizona team is as good as that Kansas team or that Florida team. But I think that they're kind of in that same mold. Like They don't really have a star. They just have a bunch of dudes that are like really good, guys that understand what their role is supposed to be, and that have kind of bought into what Sean Miller is trying to coach them. You think that's fair? So they're like a Diet Kansas in a sense. Diet Kansas, yes. Yeah, I can see that. Um, you know, the point guard position, it's going to be a two-headed attack You know, at this point. I don't really think Kadeem Allen or Parker Jackson Cartwright is going to be one who immediately grabs the reins and be, becomes that guy how you play 30-plus minutes. But that's fine. You know, they, they bring different things to the table. Allen a bit more of a scorer at the point. Jackson Cartwright, better distributor, I think. Um, but you, you look at Gabe York, who, who's made an incredible prize more years at Arizona. Big stretch against Arizona State yesterday, knocked down threes on three straight possessions. Had a similar run at Gonzaga. Alonzo Trier is a guy who can kind of score from just about anywhere on the court. Really good again at the foul line. The biggest change for me is Dusan Richstich. You know, the, he can continues to improve each day in practice in each game. He's playing with even more confidence. I mean, he spun through a double team and dropped a jump hook yesterday. That's how good he's been this season. That's not a move he would have made or even attempted to make last year. You know, So his development, you look at Ryan Anderson, uh, Mark Thompson, kind of a Swiss Army knife guy in their front court, Caleb Tarzewski coming back. He'll shake off the rust. They're the best team in the Pac-12, and they may not have a star, but they have a lot of guys hurting you on any given night. Yeah, the point you made about Gabe York is the really important one to me. Like, there have been in the two biggest wins I think that Arizona's had this year, he's kind of stepped up and been the difference maker with those the the threes that he's hit. Was it four in a row that he hit at Gonzaga? Yeah, I think it was four at Gonzaga. Yeah, so if he's able to do that, like, I don't think you can rely on that kind of thing because you know when jump shooters can kind of get streaky a little bit, but it's really nice to, to know that he's capable of doing that, especially on the road, like on the road yeah. and knocking down big shots and quieting down a home court. Like that's really big for momentum and confidence. And I think that's a good thing, uh, thing for him. What'd you think of Bobby Hurley getting ejected? Um, I wasn't too big on it. I know he saw some tweets, you know, from former coaches about setting a, a, a tempo and a, a tone and a culture and all that. It was a six point game. Like, it's a six-point game with, like, 119 to go. We got the first technical. Still a six-point game. We got the second, you know, about 20 seconds later. I don't know if that's a spot where you want to set a tone for your program. I think if you're going to get a technical, maybe get it in the first half or early second half, you know, but... I I don't think they were playing technicals. I think that he just kind of snapped and lost it <laughs> yeah i can see that too i just did not i didn't like the timing of those at all um it's almost like kevin ollie's technical against maryland like, <laughs> you have to control yourself in that spot because the game's still on the line he momentarily lost control and i don't know if they come back and beat arizona certainly not saying that but he removed any doubt with those technical fouls yeah i well for starters i thought it was absolutely hilarious 
Like yeah. that was like some straight WWE stuff. Like he was <laughs> he was screaming at the refs while walking off the court with his shirt untucked, like waving his hands up in the air, like the wings mm-hmm. at the front of his shirt were like flapping everywhere. Like it he's like, What are you doing, Bobby? Come yeah. on, man. And like here's the biggest thing to me. Like that was the first Pac twelve game that he's ever coached. Mm-hmm. He's already got a little bit of a reputation for being a guy that doesn't like officials. Like and, he doesn't really like, care for the coach's box either. Yeah, like like his brother Danny doesn't really love officials. Like I, I don't I I don't think his dad really likes officials all that much. So you know he already has a little bit of a reputation for being a guy that'll go after the refs. And here mm-hmm. he is in his first Pac-12 game, getting ejected on one like a, a situation that goes completely viral. Like everybody's going to see that. It was trending on Facebook, dude. Yeah. Like, Bobby Hurley was trending on Facebook because he got ejected. <laughs> like, that's the kind of thing that everybody's going to see. Like, everyone's going to see that video. And now coaches in the Pac-12 are going to be like, well, am I really going to want to deal with this guy? Like, am I going to want to listen to him when he has something to say to me? So I think that that is, you know, it's one thing for, like, a Sean Miller to do that. Who He's been in, what, the, the league for, like, six league, years now? Years, like, yeah, like he, doesn't, he doesn't have a great reputation in the league either. Like, do you remember that scandal a couple years ago where the – the head of the Pac-12 referees, to help make sure I'm getting this right, like the head of the Pac-12 referees was offering up a $5,000 vacation to anybody that gave Sean Miller a technical foul. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I think that was more rumor than anything. Uh, I know some people in the room at that meeting said it happened while others kind of denied it. Um, but, yeah, obviously, given the technical foul he received in that Pac-12 tournament semifinal against UCLA, something screwy did seem to be going on. Because when you, when you say to a ref, he touched the ball, and then you got teed up, that, that's kind of weird, you know, given how tight that game was down the stretch. Yeah. So, yeah, Sean Miller is a guy that knows uh, firsthand what it's like to have uh, issues with officials. And, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I guess maybe he, I wonder what he said to Bobby after the game. Like, oh, man, you done messed up. <laughs> they're going to be coming after you now people are going to be offering five thousand dollar vacations to uh yeah. to get you a technical file so yeah I, if, I don't know if that was necessarily the way he wanted to handle it but i'll tell you what a lot more people are going to be tuning into arizona state games now mm-hmm. especially the end like what is bobby hurley going to do next yeah I, I don't think he can ever top that either like you can't top that ejection no maybe if he like starts throwing stuff on the court but then you're talking suspension after the fact. Yeah, and fine too. Like yeah. you don't want to, you don't want to pay that fine. Mm-hmm. No, nobody wants to pay that fine. All right, let's uh, let's head over to the Big Ten. Let's talk a little bit about Iowa. Uh, I, the win at the win against Michigan State at home um, didn't. I don't want to say it like didn't impress me, but it was just kind of like yeah, whatever. You know, Denzel Valentine didn't play. Michigan State without Denzel Valentine is a team that probably should be losing on the road. To Iowa like it was impressive the way they did it I think they won mm-hmm. by 13 points and you know it was never really in doubt down the stretch they Iowa didn't pull away but they never really let Michigan State make a run to get close so like that was a promising win and one that is going to look awesome on their resume in March and that's kind of what I wrote afterwards is that this was a good win for their profile but it, it wasn't necessarily the kind of statement win that it would have been if they had done that with Denzel Valentine healthy but then they went into uh, Mackey Arena knocked off Purdue after being down by 19 points in the first half, and uh, you know I don't I, I, I we had them as our team of the week this week. Yeah. I don't think it's I think it's 
inarguable that they had the best week of any team in college basketball. So I ask you this, Raph. Are they now – is it safe to say that they're the fourth best team in the Big Ten? And at what point can we kind of ask whether or not they can crack that top three? Well, I think they're definitely in the conversation for fourth in the Big Ten. Um, I would probably lean them over teams like Indiana and Michigan, who's dealing with the Karis LeVert injury. Um, Iowa's been better defensively you know, this year than they had been in the two seasons prior, which I think would make them a little bit more trustworthy um, as a team than they have been. I know two years ago they couldn't guard a chair and kind of faltered down the stretch as a result. A little bit better last year. I think they've gotten even better this year. They've got some different scoring options, guys like Jared Utah, Peter Jock stepped forward for them. Mike Gisell is a good point guard for them. Um, I think this is a team that, at the very least, can finish fourth in the Big Ten. I don't know if I'd be, you know, they, they could even have an argument for top three, given the fact that they won at Purdue on Saturday. I don't think that can be ignored. Um, but, you know, I, I, interesting looking at Ken Palm, he's projecting Iowa to finish 14 and four in the Big Ten. Uh, I don't know if they'll be that good. But they can probably go on a run. They'll, they'll go to Michigan State after they play Nebraska. But it's definitely possible they can be a top three of the Big Ten team. Yeah, part of that, that what Ken Palm's numbers are saying right now factors in that. I mean, a big part of it is they won at Purdue, and Purdue was seventh yeah. in Ken Palm. And the other part of it is that they beat Michigan State, and that formula doesn't factor in that Denzel, no, Denzel Valentine. Valentine. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. factor in Denzel Valentine. But we're, hey, look. I'll tell you what, man, by the end of January, we're going to know. Because mm-hmm. in their next six games, they play at Michigan State, they get Purdue again at home, and then they play at Maryland. And then after that, they don't play any of the top three teams. The they don't play – that's it for them, like for the top yeah. three teams. They don't play them again the rest of the season. So we're going to know then. There's a there's a good chance that they could end up winning their – what is it, the last 10, 11 games of the uh, – the Pac-12, or the, I'm sorry, the Big, the big, big Ten. Yeah, they uh, got Indiana in there twice during that season-ending stretch. You know, those could be toss-ups. Um, we'll see what Michigan is, you know, how long LeVert is out. Uh, and I think some of their other guys are going to step forward, especially Duncan Robinson. Uh, they need Zach Irvin to be a, even more, be a consistent primary option with LeVert out. If he can do that, I think Michigan could be okay, but Levert just brings so much to the table. That would be a huge loss if he was out for a considerable amount of time. Well, they they need Karis Levert to be relevant. Like if they don't have Karis Levert, then I don't think that they are going to be an NCAA tournament team. Like regardless of uh-huh. what Zach Irvin does and what Derek Walton does, and you know, <coughs> we got to mention Mark Donald here. Like he's been yeah, he's, he's awesome been the first two games. I think what he have. Uh, I think he averaged twenty one points and eight and a half boards in the first two games of yep. the Big Ten season, and like they've been desperately looking for somebody to kind of play in the middle of that uh, that offense, play like in that Jordan Morgan, Mitch McGarry role. And if Donald can be that guy, like I don't think he's ever going to be Mitch McGarry. But if he can just be a dude that like finishes those pick and rolls with dunks and, you know, gets them six or seven defensive rebounds a game and is at least big enough to change a couple shots around the rim, like that is that's a huge difference maker for them because – of the way that they can kind of run offense and spread the floor with the the, the number of shooters they have. Um, but if they don't have Levert, like, he's so good, dude. Like, he's yeah. really, really good. And if they don't have him with his ability to kind of run those pick and rolls that John Beeline loves and his ability to make plays off the dribble and his, the way that he can kind of make people better, 
Like without him, that I just I don't see them being an NCAA tournament team. We will learn a lot more about Mark Donnell these next two games. At Purdue, Thursday night, and then Maryland at home next Tuesday. Uh, given the front court players that those two teams possess, if Donnell's the real deal for this team in the middle, we're going to learn a lot. He'll, he'll play pretty well against those two teams, but that's going to be a tough ask for him or any of those big men for that matter. And then they're at Iowa next Sunday. Yeah. So, yeah. Good luck with that if you don't have Karis LeVert. That's a, that's a pretty brutal mm-hmm. three-game stretch. So, All right, the last thing I want to talk about before we wrap this up is what could very well end up being the best game in college basketball this season. Kansas playing at Oklahoma, number one against number one, technically. Uh, mm-hmm. well, we'll see if that actually pans out. But Kansas, as of this moment, is number two in the AP poll and Oklahoma's number three. But in the coaches' poll, Oklahoma's number two and Kansas is number three. So if everything holds serve, then when these new polls get released, Kansas should be number one in the AP poll, and Oklahoma should be number one in the coaches' poll, which means that for the first time since 2007, we will have a game that features a number one team in the country playing the number one team in the country. Who do you have won in this game? Kansas. It's at Allen Fieldhouse. Uh I don't really like picking against Kansas, period, in the Big 12, just because of how successful they've been over the last 11-plus years. Uh, I just think being at home with Oklahoma coming off of that game against Iowa State, where they had to scratch and claw their way back you know, to pick up that win down the stretch, I think Kansas ends up winning this game. The key for Oklahoma is going to be the quality of the jump shots they take. This is a jump-shooting team. you know. For the most part, they do have guys who can get to the basket. Spangler can score. 15 feet and then step out in the three a little bit too. But in the first half against Iowa State, they really settled for the, the quality of three-pointers that they took. You know, they can't afford to do that against Kansas um, because Kansas is, is, far, is much superior to Iowa State defensively, I think. So if they don't get suckered in to taking those fool's gold threes, they can hang around for 40 minutes. Um I'm not saying they get blown out tonight, but I wouldn't be shocked if Kansas won that game by about six, seven, eight points. Yeah, Kansas is favored by five right now, so you're saying... Uh, I think they're going to cover, yeah. You think they're going to cover. The one sure. thing I will say about this game, and I don't, I don't really disagree with much that you're saying right there. Like, I, mm-hmm. you just, like, you never bet against Kansas in Fog Island. You just don't do it. Yeah. They don't lose there. Um, the one thing I will say is that this is the absolute perfect timing for this game because you know one let's like it's number one against number one you know they're number one and number two in both of the polls like this has happened in the regular season 23 times before in the history of college basketball i think the polls Mm -hmm. started in 1950 so in 65 years once every three years we get a matchup like this right so Mm -hmm. the fact that the bowl season just ended and college basketball, like this is the start of conference season for college basketball. It's the first day, first Monday after the new year. And we start with this game that is going to have a ton of hype. Two best teams in the country. And the other part of it that's going to be really important to me is that this should be a really, really watchable game for a couple of reasons. One, both Kansas and Oklahoma are in the top 52. Kansas is 51st and Oklahoma is 52nd in tempo on Kempom, meaning they yeah. both like to get out and run the floor. Kansas is third nationally in three-point shooting percentage and knocked down 45.2% of their threes. Oklahoma is second, 
They knocked down 46.2% of their threes. So this game is going to feature teams going up and down the floor, knocking down a lot of threes. Theoretically, they're going to be scoring a lot of points. Both teams use three-guard lineups. Both teams like to spread the floor. Both teams can score. Both teams have athletes that can dunk on you. You know, So I think that they're that not only is there going to be a lot of hype, but this should it's not going to be like a 50-49 to 49 game. Yeah. You know, the last time number one played number one in 2007, it was Wisconsin and Ohio State. And the final score of that game was 49 to 48. This game's not going to be 49 to 48. I would wager that it ends up in the 70s. Oh, yeah, um, at least. So, I just, I, you combine all of that, and this is the perfect way for us to basically kick off the second half of the college basketball season. So, I'm really looking forward to that. You're, you said you're taking Kansas? Yes. And you think they're going to cover? Yes, I am. I, I think Kansas is going to win, but I think I would take Oklahoma plus the points. I have a feeling this is going to be one of those games that kind of goes down to a final possession. Uh, Lon Kruger can coach. I, I really mm-hmm. think that he's going to end up being able to find a way to keep this thing close. Who ends up scoring more points, Buddy Heald or Wayne Selden? Buddy Heald. Yeah, I think that he might go off for 30, but I think Selden's going to have one of those games where he has like 26 points on um, like 9 for 12 shooting and hits six threes. You think yeah. that think that would be enough for Scott to give him the scholarship back? <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe so. Yeah, I would hope so. If Scott can't give uh, give Wayne Selden the scholarship after scoring twenty six points against Oklahoma, uh, when Oklahoma is the number one team in the country, then I don't think anything's going to get his scholarship back. All right, one thing I wanted to touch on real quick before we got out of here was an article written by Dan Uthman of USA Today Sports this morning. Uh, he's essentially talking about why or how we can kind of generate more interest in college basketball in the month of December and November when, you know, it's kind of a downtime and and college football bowl season is going on and the NFL is really kind of kicking the full gear and it's fantasy football playoffs and everything like that. So how do you generate more interest in college basketball at that time? And what he says is basically you should have a preseason sweet 16 i think he calls it like the starting 16 or something like that but essentially what he's saying is that last year's sweet 16 should play again in december uh in the tournament where the winner of that tournament i believe what he says is they get a automatic bid to the sweet 16 is that right yeah yeah i i don't love that idea what i think that they should do i i like the basis of the idea let me rephrase that i like the basis of the idea but mm-hmm. I think they need to adjust it a little bit. I think what you should do is take the conference champion, the regular season champion from each of the top 16 conferences, play that 16-team tournament, and have the winner get an automatic number one seed in the NCAA tournament for a couple of reasons. Um, but the biggest and the most important one is that it would generate interest in college basketball at a time when very few people actually care about college basketball. And... You know, I think that, you know, some people would say maybe they should just get an automatic bid to the NCAA tournament. No, because you need to have a reward on the line that is going to make people care at this point in time. Otherwise, it'd just be basically like the preseason NIT. And at this point, like nobody really cares about the preseason NIT. So if you put a big prize out there, you put a big carrot to chase, then people are going to want to care and want to tune in and want to know what's going on in this. And it'd be a cool event. And I think the other part of it is that, it would prioritize the regular season in college basketball more than it currently is right now because the regular season in college hoops like basically doesn't matter. People really only care about the NCAA tournament. Um, 
But if you if you make it so that like if Kentucky or I'm sorry if Kansas losing at home to Oklahoma tonight if that affects you know how the, their chances of actually getting into the starting 16 the next season then people are going to care more about the regular season that that's why uh, like the the Champions League in in European soccer that's what makes the 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 regular the regular season like the 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 Premier League season matters so much why a game in like December between Arsenal and like Norwich why that is such a big deal because you got to get those three points and you got to get that win if you're going to have a chance to get into the top four and get to the, the the Champions League and I think that having a Champions League kind of setup in college basketball would make the bulk of the season January and February that would make it matter even more so you know I'm I'm I love this idea I'm curious what you think and what's your take on this I like the idea uh, in terms of having a tournament like this I don't, I'm not big on the one seed because of the fact that the team you see in November that may be able to win four straight games in this type of event may not be the team you see in March. That can be a positive and that can be a negative, too. I like, I like the fact that if you don't attach a one seed to it, the selection committee would still have some sense of flexibility in regards to where they place you know, this team. Obviously, giving them an automatic bid to the tournament, I'm in favor of that. If, even if you want to put in a four, maybe say they can be no lower than a four or five seed, I'd be fine with that. But locking in the champion to a one seed, I'm not too much. I'm not too in favor of that at all. I, I remember Andy Glockner did the uh, college basketball champions league idea a couple years ago, where you had all the teams competing, you know, in a, a champions league type format. We have groups of four teams and whatnot in different stages. I wish something like that would happen in college basketball just because you would kind of, I think you'd get rid of some of the dead weight non-conference games that you see a lot of these teams playing. Um, that would probably make for a little bit more excitement throughout the, the regular portion of the season when you're up against football. Either way, you're not going to beat out football. There's just a, a relative lower number of games in football. You're not going to beat that out. But anything you can do that can kind of, you know, not just bring more casual eyeballs into the sport, but possibly sweeten the reward for those teams. It's something I'd be in favor of considering. But but here's the thing. like, So you're saying they get they, they lock up an automatic bid to the NCAA tournament? That, yeah. that that would basically be a meaningless award for the winner of this tournament. Because, all right, let's go back and look through the teams that won last season, regular season titles. SMU, well, yeah. SMU won the American. Virginia won the ACC. Kansas won the Big 12. Villanova won the Big East. Wisconsin won the Big Ten, so they're probably the only team. You know, you look through all these teams. Arizona won the Pac-12. So, like, what you're basically saying is, like, you're going to get something that you're already going to get anyway. So why would well, Arizona fans care about the, the, the that early season tournament when that's basically locking them into something that they're already going to get? My point is that if he locks you into a number one seed, then Virginia, if, like if Virginia goes through and wins, then Virginia locks themselves into that one seed, which they might already end up getting considering that, you know, they won this tournament then they might go win the ACC regular season or whatever. But I, I just, if you only give them a tournament bid, you are giving them a reward that doesn't mean anything for that team. Well, that's under the assumption that a powerhouse team would win the event. My thing is you play this thing in, in mid-November, who knows what you're going to get? You know, you bring up the Wisconsin example. They lost their opening to Western Illinois. So I think, you know, if, if you if you attach 
to one seed to the winner, you're essentially assuming that the winner is going to be a finished product. And I, I, I don't like that idea at all. I, I think if you want to put some type of floor, as I said earlier, on there, cool. But giving them a one seed, no, nah, I, I can't get on board with that part of the reward. Well, I mean, that, that, but that's the whole thing about it. Like the thing that makes the NCAA tournament so great are the upsets and the chance that you might not, like you might see a team that has no business making the final four, get into the final four. Like that's the thrilling part about it. That's what people love. That's what brings in the eyeballs, you know? And I think that what you need to be able to do is provide something like that earlier in the season. And I think that this absolutely would do it. And I just, I don't, I don't think that it, so maybe like, so what are you saying like give them like a floor of saying like they won't get lower than like a four seed or something like that won't get lower than like a two seed yeah i'd say a four just give and it I, a little i guess like i guess i can get on board with that but i still don't think you're giving them you're really giving them anything i think you need to have it for people to really care about this i think you really need to have it but here's here's the thing about this argument like it's not going to matter at all there is no possible way that this would ever happen for a couple of reasons one like schools book their ex- exempt events like years in advance, mm-hmm. right? So what you're basically saying is that they're going to have to postpone plans to kind of get like, you know, the, the teams that, that are going to be playing in like the Maui Invitational next season have already been announced. And what, what would happen if like Kansas, I, I don't have the Maui invitation, Invitational list in front of me, but Kansas won the Maui this year. And they also would have had to play in that preseason tournament this year. So... How are you going to balance all that? You know, and you have the Champions Classic. Yeah, some of those teams. Yeah. So to go to to your point about giving a team a winner an automatic one seed, if they were to do it for this year, taking into consideration, you know, the top sixteen leagues from last season, um, are you are you suggesting the regular season champion be selected or yes, absolutely regular season champion because that prioritizes the regular season and it makes it matter. It would make every single game matter. Like the, the one of the biggest issues with college basketball is that there's basically you don't get anything for re- winning a regular season title. You know, there's really there's basically no reward for. It. You win the the conference tournament title and you get an automatic bid to the NCAA tournament. You win the regular season title and what do you get? You know, that's the reason that look at look at Murray State. You know, what they get for winning the regular season title last year? and losing on a buzzer beater in the conference tournament title game, a trip to the NIT. Who cares about a trip to the NIT? The postseason NIT might actually be more meaningless than the regular season NIT. And what I'm saying is that if you provide a situation where a team like Murray State would have a chance to go in and and basically get themselves a number one seed in the NCAA tournament or, you know, a floor of a four seed in the NCAA tournament that early in the year, then I think that that makes the conference regular season actually mean something, and I think that that's important for college basketball. Uh, but, you know, we've been here for 45 minutes now, Raph. I think we've kept you long enough. I know you're probably getting tired and you want to get to the gym before uh, before you get the crush of all the post-New Year's folks. So I'll let you get off and go get your uh, your workout in. Um, right, thank you, guys. Thank you guys for tuning in again. I uh, hope everybody had a happy and safe New Year. Um, as always, you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, and we are now on the Stitcher app as well. So do that. It's the quickest way to get the new episodes to your cell phone or your tablet, and we will check in again with you guys on Wednesday.
Some people just know there's a better way to do things, like bundling your home and auto insurance with Allstate, or hiring someone to move your piano instead of doing it yourself. So, do things the better way. Bundle home and auto and save up to 25% with Allstate. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.